Welcome back to Midwretched, friends. Welcome back. Welcome back. We hope you're doing well out there. Mm-hmm. We hope you can see through the smog in the Midwest. This lovely post-apocalyptic sky. Yeah, it's great, right? Yeah. I can taste yeah. the smoke when I walk down the street. I know. I feel like I'm living in a sci-fi novel. Yeah. Not in a good way. Yeah, no, it's 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 unpleasant. Yeah, it is. It is. Anyway, I'm Tommy. I'm Mick. What up? What up? We are today here for a part two, yeah, right? So we, we should probably just kind of dive in probably. unless you have updates. I mean, there's the biggest update. Our subject has died in between our two episodes. Which is crazy. I was like, there's no way that you knew this was going to happen. Well, for the record, guys, he was found in his cell two days after we finished recording. Crazy. Yeah. Like, I could not believe that when I read that. So it was before we even released it. We recorded it. And then two days later, he dies. And then I got the alert on my phone when I was sitting down to edit it crazy yeah Yeah. because we had obviously been talking about him in the present tense in the sense that like he is this kind of person yada yada which is not true anymore because he was that kind of person now that kind of person and in talking about the kind of person he was i wanted to touch up touch on just some kind of comment so you had texted me (laughs) a text that clearly (laughs) i i shared with my husband obviously (laughs) Um, shortly after we finished recording and you'd said, I need to know more about Ted Kaczynski's sex life. I mean, <laughs> it's, it was true. It was haunting me the next day. It was haunting me so much. Mm-hmm. And I think like this is relevant and I don't want people to think that we're completely like making a joke of it because I think that it is relevant mm-hmm. to some of the stories that are told about him and mm-hmm. some of the news stories that kept popping up afterward, especially in our dumbass current culture cycle. So one of the biggest things that we had talked about was he had approached a psychiatrist. Um, I think I kept saying psychologist while we were recording, and that's my bad because I was I had been typing in a shorthand. um, Mm. And my shorthand for both of those is just PSY and I they're interchangeably. But anyway, he had approached a psychiatrist while he was in graduate school seeking essentially a sex change surgery. He had been having these fantasies about being a woman, having sex with himself as a woman. And he wanted to convince the psychiatrist to allow him passage to get a sex change surgery. And I use that term as opposed to gender confirmation surgery, because that is really what he was looking for. Yeah. And this is the part that I wanted to like, make sure that we really detailed out very thoughtfully. Mm -hmm. And so I was I was really thinking a lot. Well, we texted about it and I was thinking a lot about like, what did this mean to him? Because Mm -hmm. it didn't. And obviously this is your subject. So, you know, pop off. Um, But it's not as though he felt like he was, you know, trans. Like he didn't feel like he was a woman. Mm -hmm. Correct. He felt like he wanted to have sex with himself as a woman, which there's a term for that. Yes. That, yeah, that I don't know off the top of my head, but there's a term for that. Autogynephilia. There it is. Okay. So the difference is that it's not, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is what I was like spinning out about, is like mm-hmm. it's not, it was not about gender identity for him. Correct. It was about a sexual preference. It was an exclusively erotic desire. Mm -hmm. Now, 
This has been evaluated by people with a closer connection to the case by Sally Johnson, who is the chief psychiatrist in the Federal Correction Institute where Kaczynski was evaluated. And this was her conclusions after speaking with him during the evaluation that his seeking of this surgery was exclusively erotic in nature. It was not gender dysphoric. He just was having these fantasies, these intrusive thoughts and intrusive fantasies to the point that they were causing him distress about having sex with himself as a woman. Mm -hmm. Autogynephilia is a, it is lumped under one of the paraphilias. Um, I think it's transvestic paraphilia. It was in the DSM-4 and they might have changed it by now. Yeah, that terminology is like super gross. So I hope that's not what it is anymore. (laughs) It is, it's a term that's not without controversy. Autogynephilia was first proposed by sexologist Ray Blanchard in 1980. He defined it as a man's paraphilic tendency to be sexually aroused by the thought or image of himself as a woman. Um, So it's, again, not about gender identity, not about wanting to be a woman, not about seeing himself in this light, but more about kind of this narcissistic sexual drive and version paraphilia yeah and that was really interesting to me because then it was like okay like if this is not about a gender identity then what is it about Mm -hmm. and and that became my overriding question and so i just wonder about like and you you know way more about ted kaminsky than i do (laughs) sadly so (laughs) sadly um so i was really curious about like okay like if this is was this a something that he felt like his entire life Mm -hmm. right like you know there are some like sexual attractions that you know you'll have from the first time you ever feel a sexual feeling Mm -hmm. right um and then there might be other ones that sort of come and go in your life like depending like situationally or you know whatever is going on you know and every all of it's valid so I wondered if this was like fleeting for him or if this was like a lifelong thing or what. To my sense, it was more of a fleeting thing and more of a result of feelings of loneliness, feelings of rejection, coupled with some feelings of narcissism. I had mentioned before, he had some kind of very incelish drives Mm -hmm. um, that he, you know, he clearly wanted a sex life. He clearly wanted relationships. He had attempted to date. There were a couple of citations that said that he had a girlfriend in high school. In college, he had attempted to date. Even um, at other various points while he was at Berkeley and other things, he would like try to meet people. At one point, he joined a chapter of the Sierra Club, which is like an adventure people club. Yeah, the nature club. Because he had he wanted to meet people. But his shyness, his awkwardness, his severe social anxiety always kind of got in the way. At one point, even while he was living in his cabin in Montana, I thought this was an interesting story. When he was living in Montana, there was no shower. There was no bath. He didn't really clean himself. He wore the same clothes day in, day out. But he met a girl at one of the shops in town, and he bought himself a new pair of jeans because he wanted to impress and flirt with her. Oh. He had in several letters written about wishing that he had found a partner, wishing Mm. that he had found a relationship. Even at one point that we'll talk about today, he sought out mental health care because he's like, I want to learn how to have relationships because I want to be with somebody. Mm. 
So I do think that what he was going, what was going on in his head at that time was like we talked about when you get into, when certain people get into these very strong cognitive distortions, these very strong depression, isolation, feelings of rejection and feelings of anger, coupled with narcissism and kind of sexual, lacking of sexual interactions, that was what it turned to for him was the autogynephilia. Yeah, that's, it's fascinating. I've never heard of that before. Gender talked about in that particular way Mm -hmm. before. So I was just really curious about, like, how does this work for other people? Is this like a a fairly common type of paraphilia or is it something like pretty unusual? In my understanding, my research, it's pretty unusual. The, the struggle when the term was developed in 1980 was we had such a poor understanding of gender and sexuality and the differences between those two things. What are the boundaries between gender and sexuality? And even still, Mm -hmm. we're recognizing how gray those things can be. Mm -hmm. Um, But things like trans identities were lumped under transvestism and were lumped under autogynephilia and -hmm. were lumped under fetishes and paraphilias and things like that, which is why this is still kind of a controversial thing. Because yeah. for a lot of psychiatrists at the time, any trans person that walked in the door would be lumped under this autogynephilia. Mm-hmm. But it's actually relatively rare. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess like the distinction that is important to maybe just explicitly spell out is like Ted Kaczynski knew himself to be a man. Mm-hmm. So if we think about like sexual identity as like how we identify ourselves, what do we know ourselves to be? And then uh, like sexual expression as in who do I want to have sex with? Mm-hmm. And that answer for Ted Kaczynski, at least at one point in his life, was I want to have sex with myself as a woman. Mm-hmm. Is that pretty? Yes. Accurate? Yes. Okay. Ted Kaczynski identified as male, knew himself in that way. He was attracted to women. He wanted sexual relationships with women. And the way that that was expressed at that time was in a sexual attraction to the idea of himself as a woman. Mm-hmm. Have you been reading your Sorry Van Anders? Have I been what? <laughs> Sorry Van Anders is a uh, sex cool and name. gender. I know she's a beautiful speaker. Um, she's a sex and gender researcher who developed the sexual configurations theory. Oh. And it is a very complicated system. It's like a three-dimensional cone. I'm going to write that down. All right. So now that we have outlined (laughs) Ted Kaczynski's sexuality. Yes. His sexual configuration. (laughs) Now what? All right. So recap of where we did actually leave off in terms of his story. When we left our antagonist, Ted Kaczynski, he had just left his family's home following a romantic rejection conflict with his family and kind of decided that he is going to go live in the woods by himself however not without leaving his first bomb so around the same time he leaves he leaves his parents home in june of 1978 the first bomb would go off in the at the end of may 1978 That first bomb 
would be found and picked up by a security officer at Northwestern University named Terry Maker, where it would go off in his hands. Luckily, the bomb was relatively rudimentary and left Terry with only minor damage to his left hand. At the time that the bomb was discovered, it was kind of chalked up to a prank. A dangerous prank, but a prank. Like I said, it was relatively minimum damage. This was the first thing that had ever happened. And there wasn't many clues. There wasn't really much to investigate other than somebody left this bomb for a professor at Northwestern University. Um, The way that I kind of want to structure things from here is I want to talk about kind of the order that the bombs occur. But while we're doing that, I also want to talk about what's going on in Ted Kaczynski's personal life. Mm. So rather than focusing on the investigation, we're really going to kind of focus on the life of Ted Kaczynski. There are a lot of really wonderful podcasts, books, documentaries about the investigation. I would recommend Project Unabomber as well as Hunting the Unabomber. I think that those are really great if you are interested in the actual investigation side of things. But what I wanted to focus on is the information that we got from his letters, his journals, his letters to the New York Times and the Washington Post, as well as his psych eval, which I was able to track down and stayed up way too late one night reading. (laughs) Yes. Yes, I read his MMPI results. Good. I love an MMPI. God. He also took the MCMI. And apparently he took the uh, thematic apperception test, which, as I mentioned, was developed by um, Henry Murray, Mm. who was accused of torturing him at Harvard. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. Same guy. I I doubt he knew that. Um, But I thought that was interesting. Unfortunately, there were not too many results available from the TAT because of the way that it's scored and the results that we get from it are hard to share results Mm. so in that again kind of talking about sources we're going to talk about a lot of primary sources a lot of journals a lot of letters a lot of psych reports that sort of thing because i want to kind of focus on like what his motivation let's seek a a deeper understanding of who this person is and so i'm going to start by an excerpt from his journal we're going to do a lot of excerpts in this episode yes (laughs) i know that's your favorite It is. So here is an excerpt from one of his journals written on April 6th, 1971. So this is about seven years before he even starts the bombings, but well into his ruminations and well into the development of his personal anti-industrial theory. Kaczynski writes, My motive for doing what I am doing is simply personal revenge. I do not expect to accomplish anything by it. Of course, if my crime and my reasons for committing it gets any public attention and may help to stimulate public interest in the technology question and thereby improve the chances of stopping technology. It is too late, but on the other hand, most people will probably be repelled by my crime and the opponents of freedom may use it as a weapon to support their arguments for controlling for control over human behavior. I have no way of knowing whether my actions will do more good than harm. I certainly don't claim to be an altruist or be acting for the good, whatever that is, of the human race. I am merely acting from a desire for revenge. Of course, I would like to get revenge on the whole scientific and bureaucratic establishment, not to mention the communists and others who threaten freedom, 
But that being impossible, I have to content myself to just a little revenge. Perhaps some people will deny that I am motivated by hatred for what is happening to freedom. However, I think that my that I know myself pretty well, and I think they're wrong. So, he's a man that is claiming very simply, I am angry, and this is about revenge. He's yeah. ruminating on these thoughts well before his first attack. So, June 1978, like I said, he returns to his 10 by 12 foot cabin in the Montana woods, very, very simple cabin. No running water, no toilets, no nothing. The cabin is located in Montana outside of Helena. It is on about a one and a quarter acre of land, fairly deep inside the woods. One and a quarter acre is not a ton of land, honestly. No. Um, each plot of land in my neighborhood is about a quarter of an acre. And so, like, me and a couple of my neighbors is what that would be. Yeah, my old house with my ex-husband the backyard was a half acre so he's relatively deep into the woods but he doesn't not have neighbors in fact one of his neighbors was the owner of a sawmill um they're also nearby cattle ranches and trails ted had one of his neighbors that he was relatively friendly with um friendly by ted's standards being that he would occasionally wave and chat um Mm -hmm. but being outwardly kind of pleasant and polite the sawmill operator, however, he had a little bit more of a kind of complex relationship with. So while they were initially relatively friendly, the sawmill buzzing was a constant reminder to Ted that... That's going to be super triggering for him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You haven't truly escaped. Yeah, that's so interesting. If you remember from our last episode, he had originally wanted to buy a larger piece of land in Canada, likely even deeper into the woods. Mm -hmm. Um, But he was not able to afford that. That was not approved. Um, So this was really kind of settling for him. And I think that, again, that that sawmill buzzing, that industrial lumberyard feel was something that triggered him. Mm. He would constantly get into spats with the sawmill owner. He would be bothered by the travelers, especially folks who would ride through on like their motorcycles, ATVs, that sort of thing. He had not escaped in the way I think that he had fantasized about mm-hmm. escaping. So there's two sides of Kaczynski that we can talk about. The side of Kaczynski who would ride his bicycle a few miles into town to visit the local library to purchase the few goods that he wasn't able to forage for himself. He actually built a relatively decent, friendly relationship with the local librarian. Um, in, a fr- in a forensic interview regarding the librarian's view of Kaczynski, she kind of described him as, quote, different. He was shy, soft-spoken, incredibly polite to her. He would often help out there to earn a couple of dollars by shoveling snow, boxing up books, doing what he could, again, to hey, you're kind of the man in the woods. Here's a couple of dollars to buy some food for the winter. Mm. Although she was initially put off by him, she would eventually build a good rapport and would work to make him kind of feel comfortable in the library. She said she really wanted to accommodate his differences and to train other librarians to do the same. Oh, what a good person. She is such a good person. I think that she saw, like, Oh, this is a very neurodivergent person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. he does not have the same comfort level that most people do. 
Yeah. I think that part of this seems to be triggered by she also had a son who showed some similar traits of shyness, social awkwardness, that sort of thing. And that in a weird way, she kind of saw saw her son in Kaczynski. Mm. So it kind of triggered that mothery thing. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, In fact, she would introduce her son to Kaczynski, and she said the only physical contact she ever saw Kaczynski engage in for the 13 years she knew him was patting her son on the shoulder following a conversation. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm. She even stayed in contact with him after he stopped coming to the library, Um, but she would say toward the end of the time that she knew him, she saw him degrading. Mm. She saw him being increasingly short-tempered. She saw him isolating even more, becoming more and even more disheveled. If you ever look at the actual arrest photos of the moment that he was arrested, he does not look good. No. Yeah. But then there's the other side of Kaczynski, the side that I think that most people would be more familiar with. The isolated side back at his cabin, building bombs, writing scathing letters to family and others, and taking increasingly aggressive opportunities to lash out at anyone who got in the way of his need for isolation. Mm. That family with the sawmill, the family were the Garings. They lived a literal five-minute walk from Kaczynski. Again, not especially isolated the way I think he had wanted to be. Yeah. Although they were initially friendly, as Kaczynski grew increasingly mentally ill, irritable, short-tempered, overstimulated, he set off the family more and more and more. Um, He would start lashing out at the noise that they would make. And some of the stuff I'm going to talk about here is from a New York Post article. So (laughs) take that all with a grain of salt. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it is given by the daughter of the sawmill operator. Mm. The article describes that Kaczynski would start getting more agitated by any kind of industrial noise, the sound of helicopters surveilling the land, motorcycles, the sound of the mill. He would pour sugar into different parts and gears of the mill to sabotage it so that they would have to shut it down for the day. Mm. He strung up razor wire near the trails where the motorcyclists would drive at neck height, an, an apparent attempt to decapitate or at least severely injure any of the motorcyclists. That's messed up. He reportedly built a twenty-two pistol by hand to make, quote, a homicide weapon. Mm. Weird wording, but whatever. That's, yeah. Um, Very strange. He also started shooting his hunting rifle at helicopters that were flying over his land. Hmm. He once chopped down a utility pole. And this is one that I haven't seen any other verification of. He chopped down a utility pole because he said that the payphone attached to the phone kept stealing his change. Weird. I mean, payphones will steal your change, but I've never chopped down a utility pole for it. Yeah, that's a, a pretty intense overreaction. Mm-hmm. So again, yeah. he's clearly spiraling. And this is his kind of daily life. Again, I wanted to talk about, like, what does his actual life look at look like mm-hmm. in the cabin? Because it's not this cool, calm, calculated mastermind. Yeah. It's a man that is spiraling down fast. Yeah, he's like very triggered and very angry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It would get increasingly creepy with the Garings. 
Um, so the daughter that was interviewed for this New York Post article, Jamie, grew up on the farm. She was in her teens when he was arrested. Said that the family became increasingly afraid of him. You know, it would start out with like, Ted would come over to complain about the sawmill noise and the owner would kind of jokingly threaten like, go away or I'm going to get my chainsaw and cut down your favorite tree. You know, <laughs> don't make me get my chainsaw, Ted. Yeah. Um, but this would escalate to, again, him pouring sugar to jam up their machines. He even killed their dog. Kaczynski was suspected of being responsible for the deaths of at least six dogs in the area at the time by poisoning. Jeez. He was poisoning their dogs. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And this is the same child that we talked about that, like, would get upset if there was an injured rabbit in their yard. Yeah. So he's, like, either his bleeding heart for the animals has gone away or he gets into these, like, blind rages where he just kind of goes for whatever he can do to really mess with people and get them upset. He also shot and killed a local rancher's cow Hmm. just in cold blood, in revenge, in retaliation. His justification for this was saying that he wasn't killing an animal or a living creature. He was killing a product of industrial society. Mm, Okay. So there's this rationalization for that. There's always a twisted rationalization that it's not me, it's you. Mm. He was caught peeping on Jamie's stepmother, Wendy. And would reveal writings in his journals would reveal fantasies of killing both Wendy and Jamie. Killing them, like, like for real, like, by hand, like? Just that he would see them walking by and would write in his journals that, like, oh, I could kill one or both of them, but if I killed this one, then this would happen, and so I would just have to kill both of them. That's interesting, because I guess I think of him, like, solely as Mm -hmm. the Unabomber, Mm -hmm. and I hadn't really considered him as, like, otherwise murderous, I guess. And he never did act on any of those at any time Mm -hmm. i think the face to face was too much for him yeah which is good if for their sake yeah but it meant he had to channel that energy Mm -hmm. another way Mm -hmm. yeah so i think again like if we you know looking at him and his profile and his personality he's not this calm cool calculated level-headed person Mm -mm. he's a hair trigger yeah. So that's kind of like the escalation of his personal life and kind of what's going on. Like we said, first bombing that occurred was May 25th, 1978. Nearly a year would pass before the next bombings would occur. I'm pulling together this timeline of the bombings from the FBI's website because they have it very nicely laid out, but it's mm-hmm. available in a million different places. So like I said, we're going to talk about the timeline of the bombings in conjunction with a timeline of his personal life okay so the next bombing would occur may 9th 1975 this one again was at northwestern university located in a kind of like shared student area like a grad student kind of study area a northwestern graduate student named john harris finds a box that is wrapped up in some places they described it as wrapped up like a gift in other places they described it as um a cigar box Hmm. John Harris picks up the box, and immediately upon opening it, it explodes in his hands. 
Once again, the student suffers only minor damage and burns to and kind of minor burns and cuts to his hands. Mm. Once again, this is kind of chalked up to like, okay, that's weird to have two in two years or two in one year, but is this a prank? Is this just a student acting out? What's going on? Especially mm-hmm. because the first two were at Northwestern. Yeah. But after that, he starts to escalate. Only six months later, in November of 1979, American Airlines Flight 444 from Chicago to Washington, D.C., was carrying a package that had been mailed by Kaczynski with a detonator set to explode at a certain altitude. The package was relatively small, about 9.5 by 10.5 by 7.5, so the size of, like, if you ordered a textbook and it came in a box. Huh. Not a box that would really garner any major attention. Yeah. However, as the, tr- as the plane climbed and reached that specific altitude triggered by the altimeter, the trigger mechanism went off. However, it failed to fully explode, and the bomb only partially detonated while in the cargo hold of the airplane. While no passengers were injured by the explosion, smoke eventually leaked into the cargo area into the passenger's cabin. The plane would be forced to make an emergency landing and would land within only about 10 minutes of the cabin filling with smoke. That's horrifying. All of the passengers survived. That's good. Because the smoke was filling up from one end to the other, all the passengers were unbuckling their seatbelts, running out of their seat to one side of the cabin. Things were flying out of the overhead compartments. Just chaos. Absolute chaos. 12 passengers would eventually be treated in the hospital for smoke inhalation. Mm. All would survive, but this was the first bombing that would gain significant attention by both media and the FBI. Mm. The bombing of the commercial airliner was a huge escalation for him. Although it failed, it got him the media attention that I think he really was seeking. I mean, it does show that he's, you know, I don't want to say he's getting better at his craft. Mm-hmm. But it does show an increase in sophistication and what he's able to build out. And his planning. Yeah. But there would be, I mean, there's no way that investigators at this point were like, and I know you're not doing the investigation quite as much, but there's no way they were like, oh, huh, this reminds me of those two random tiny bombings at Northwestern. Like, they're they're not putting this all together as one person. It wouldn't be until about the fifth or sixth bomb that these would actually be put together. Yeah. Yeah. The Washington Post, like, this was the first one that the Washington Post reported on. The Washington Post followed this story wonderfully. Like, if you can get into their archives, they're great. Mm. Although, at this specific incident, there wasn't a ton of information to report. They stated that there wouldn't have been any way for the bomber to know exactly what plane the package would be going on. But it did, just by happenstance, happen to be a plane carrying 12 librarians on their way to the White House Conference of Libraries. (laughs) Oh, no. I know. So. Don't, you don't mess with the librarians, man. The librarian was the only person being nice to him. Seriously. Why are you fucking with librarians? Mm-mm. You might be wondering kind of how was he sending these? How are these getting to their location? Mm-hmm. The amazing women of the FBI, and I say women specifically because women solved this case. Uh, <laughs> Hell yeah. (laughs) And the investigators on this case were actually eventually able to track his movements via Amtrak and Greyhound tickets to all of his travels between Helena and the closest major cities. Helena was the closest major city to his cabin, but they would track like his travel tickets 
from Helena to Chicago to Utah to Berkeley and to other locations of the bombings that we're going to talk about. Okay. So he was taking trains and buses. Mm -hmm. I didn't go into it too much, but at this time, he was earning very minimal money. Again, kind of doing odd jobs and things like that. He was also receiving money from his brother and his mom. Mm. Okay. I don't, again, kind of won't go into it too much because I think David Kaczynski has beaten himself up quite enough for this. Um, But they had kind of sent him some money. Again, thinking, hey, we want you to eat over the winter. Hey, we want you to be warm over the winter. That sort of thing. I mean, what else are you going to do? Yeah. His next bomb would be sent about seven months later, June 10th, 1980, to the United Airlines president, Percy Woods to his home Hmm. in Lake Forest, Illinois. So a lot of these early bombs were, went off in Illinois, in the Chicagoland Mm -hmm. area. This bomb was encased within a copy of the book Ice Brothers. The book had been carved out and hollowed out with the bomb placed inside of it. Um, If you're curious, Ice Brothers, I couldn't find any major connections. It's a book about like World War II soldiers. Interesting. They've just been random. They've <laughs> they just been just like been... the perfect size or a book that he didn't care about and was like, oh, I'll just gut this one. Exactly. Like, oh, this bomb fits into this book. Mm-hmm. Or maybe there's some deep, profound connection that's beyond us. Who knows? So the book had been carved and hollowed out with a bomb inside of it. This was one of the first times that a specifically targeted bomb would reach its intended recipient. Mm. However, once again, the trigger mechanism did not quite work, and the explosion was much weaker than Kaczynski had intended for it to be. Percy Woods would suffer burns over his body and cuts from the shrapnel that had been placed within the bomb. So essentially, there was the bomb and the trigger mechanism, and then metal, nails, things that were intended to cause more damage once it exploded. Reviewing his journals and writings at the time shows us that Ted Kaczynski very much cared not only about the bombs and who he harmed, but that his bombings were covered in the papers. Mm. And of course, in this, once this bombing was covered, because, okay, the last bombing was at United Airlines. This one was specifically to the president of United Airlines. Mm. Now we're making connections. Now the FBI is starting to see these things. It would be covered in the newspapers, and obviously they would comment on the faulty craftsmanship and the weak detonation due to loose wires within the detonator. To which, if we go to Kaczynski's journals, he would write, quote, This is false, though. My designs may have been poor due to ignorance of the technology. The the detonator did all I designed for it to do. It ignited powder, and I know for certain there was nothing loose. He brags about the injuries that he caused to Percy Woods, but then goes on to complain about the cost of his bombs as he was starting to make them in this more sophisticated manner, thinking things through more carefully. And he was traveling for each of these bombs. He Mm. personally placed each one of these and personally delivered them at least close to their intended destination. Continuing from his journals, he wrote... My projects for revenge on the technological society are expensive and I need money to carry them out. For Mm. instance, last fall I attempted a bombing and spent nearly 300 bucks just for travel expenses, motel, clothing for disguise, etc., aside from the cost of materials for bomb. So, oh, okay. Hmm. 
I see. Okay. I was confused about um, like why that airline, but the first one was American and then Percy Wood was United Airlines. Oh, United. So yeah. two different airlines. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I think I said that they were both American. That was my bad. Yeah. No, I was confused about like, why is he so mad at American Airlines? <laughs> but then, yeah. So Percy Wood uh, was the president of United, but mm-hmm. the first airplane bomb or the was I American. Guess, yeah, that's was my American bad. Thank Airlines. you for correcting yeah. me. No, I was just confused because I was like, why? Why this What airline? did American airline? Did they lose his baggage too? Yeah, right. <laughs> I've been there, but geez. Um, but I guess like, so the airlines and this airline president would have symbolized. The they just represent these. society and technology and people should not mm-hmm. be traveling like this. People should not be moving like this. Yeah. And because Percy Wood lived in suburban Chicago, that's an access thing mm-hmm. right yeah. so it wouldn't have mattered if it was southwest united american whatever it's the fact that this guy was associated with his industry and, and he was in suburban chicago within an area of where he might have been visiting his parents or had easy access to travel to or mm-hmm. it's also just a familiar place for him yeah and as we know i mean again kind of following like typology of serial killers they tend to attack in familiar places first and then expand out yeah and I think Chicago land felt very comfortable to Kaczynski. But he would eventually start to move out, actually, on his next bombing. It would be about a year before his next bombing attempt, October 8th, 1981, this time at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. A brown paper bag is identified on the campus. It was seen with a just a brown paper bag with a string hanging out of it. Creepy. Yeah, right? Creepy. And I think all of the students on campus thought the same thing. Because at this point, the papers, the FBI have all been on the case. People are like, there's university bombings. They're bombing airlines. Mm. You know, university, airline, unibomber. Yeah. Yeah. Ah. Yeah, that's how he got that name. University and airline bombing. (laughs) That has solved... A 30-year <laughs> riddle in my head. Yeah. Because I'm thinking, like, Yuna, like, singular. Mm-hmm. Sing- single bomber, like, lone genius. Like, that's what I thought, but... No, university and airline. Ah, well, okay. Yeah. Makes way more sense. <laughs> <laughs> that makes way more sense. All right. Yeah, yeah. anyway so because people are now um they've heard about this pattern they're familiar with this pattern they're starting to put it together when a suspicious package is seen in a university hallway it's quickly identified as a threat and security is called immediately the bomb is safely removed from the hallway and detonated without injury Mm. yay good yeah see something say something yeah truly About seven months later, so May 5th, 1982, Kaczynski sends a bomb to the head of the computer science department at Vanderbilt University, Professor Patrick Fisher. Hmm. However, the package was not picked up by the department head, but instead his secretary, Janet Smith. She opened the package and the bomb went off in her hands, injuring her arms, chest, and face. Oh, no. She, again, would eventually recover with medical treatment. There was no significant physical impairment or damage, uh, like permanent physical damage to Janet. Mm. 
In his journals, Ted Kaczynski would write this about the bombing. Quote, I sent a bomb to a computer expert named Patrick Fisher. His secretary opened it. One newspaper said she was in hospital, question mark, in good condition, question mark, with cuts on arm, with arm and chest cuts. Other newspapers said bomb drove fragments of wood into her flesh, but no indication she was permanently disabled. Frustrating that I can't seem to make lethal bomb. Ah. Use shotgun powder in this last, hoping it would do better than rifle powder. XXX. Revenge attempts have been, have been gobbling much time, impeding other work. But I must succeed, must get revenge. I think what's frustrating to me is that he seems to have no, like, he puts himself out as like, I'm, I'm re- taking revenge on society, I'm taking revenge on this, that, and the other. He doesn't actually care who he hurts. No, yeah. A secretary doesn't have anything to do with his fight. Right. The students, the security officers, they don't have anything to do with his fight. Mm-hmm. And he has no empathy for that. He has no change, no... Yeah. And there's no remorse for a missed, mm-hmm. you know, like, in his mind, I could see a different version of himself thinking, oh, shit, an innocent bystander. Yeah. But yeah. that doesn't exist in his consciousness for exactly. whatever reason. Exactly. It's also interesting to me how he... and. Maybe it's just like the way that he writes and his kind of more math background and thing like that. But it's interesting to me that he writes in a way that feels like um, a very matter of fact. Like it's Mm -hmm. not even when he's talking about how he feels about something, it reads as though he's reporting on his feelings, Mm -hmm. not feeling his feelings in his writing. Yes, I, I, I fully agree. Yeah. Which is something that I do. <laughs> so. This is a log of thought, feeling, action. Yes. Yeah. And I'm curious about that for him, what that's about. If that's about just a style, mm-hmm. you know, um, or if it's about a sense of a greater sense of detachment that's worth thinking about and worth digging into. I think that there's a sense of detachment. My question is what's behind and what's driving that detachment? Is it is it something innate to how he processes the world? Yeah. Or is it an intentional detachment from the people he is harming? Yeah. Because it's, I mean, it's his journal. So he's writing it only for himself. He is the only audience, mm-hmm. right? It's a log of his activities. So, you know, in the absence of somebody else seeing it, then what's the, what's the why there? Well, I think... I, I think that that's interesting because I don't 100% know if he was writing just for himself. Mm. There are indications that he meant for these to be read in case he was that's found. That's true, yeah. If he, yeah, I could see that. He wanted people to, a lot of the times when he was writing and he was logging his thoughts and what was going on, it was very intentional that he, quote, didn't want to be seen as a sickie. Mm-hmm. that he didn't want to be seen as a madman, that he was doing this with intention and he was doing mm-hmm. this precisely. Yeah. I don't think that that's actually what you get, though, when you read his journals. No. So his next bombing would come only two months later. He left a bomb in the break room of Corey Hall at UC Berkeley, his where he had previously taught. Oh. The only person injured is an engineering professor, Diogenes Angelakos. The professor was interviewed in a paper 
I found a really, really cool timeline of the bombings that actually put together like newspaper reporting of each of these events. Oh, cool. At, yeah, I'll, I'll link it on when we do like the socials. It's very interesting. The professor stated that he, when he had found the box, he was in the coffee break room at the university where he saw this box that had some exposed wires. He went over there to move it, to get it out of the way. And as he picked it up, that's when the bomb exploded. Mm. Professor Angelakos experienced minor injuries to his face, but more major injuries to his hand that would, that would require significant surgery and reconstruction. In response to this bombing, Kaczynski writes... I went to U of California, Berkeley and placed in computer science and placed in computer science building a bomb consisting of a pipe bomb in a gallon can of gasoline. According to newspaper, vice chairman of computer science department, he he shorthands all of that computer side mm -hmm. dip, picked it up. He was considered to be, quote, out of danger of losing any fingers, but would need further surgery for bone and tendon damage in hand. Apparently, pipe bomb went off, but did not ignite gasoline. I don't understand it frustrated traveling expenses for raids such as foregoing such as the foregoing are very hard for my slender financial resources berkeley and Corey hall specifically Corey hall was the only specific location that kaczynski would actually attack twice like oh, same really? building same location yeah in a row yes actually interesting Corey Hall was the center of the computer science and electrical engineering departments. Mm. So again, we're looking at attacks on a computer science president, a, a college of mechanics, an airliner, an airline president. These are the people he's going after. Yeah. I don't really know what the intended building or recipient was at the first Utah bombing. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. I wonder how far is that? I wonder if that was just like, he's just looking for the a close major university but i mean that would still be a pretty good hike no they weren't they weren't just like immediate the closest universities because there's so many closer universities in montana he had specifically kind of selected these yeah because the university of montana would be two hours from his cabin mm -hmm. so that would be a much more logical way to go Maybe they had some sort of like prominent article come out in the field of technology, some kind of technology field or something like that. He's yeah. clearly keeping up on who these people are. Mm -hmm. He knows who he's sending these to, if not caring who he actually injures in the process, though. Yeah. Yeah. But I do think that that at one point that does kind of start to spiral down. Um, and we'll get to that part. I think most likely because of his finances, it would be nearly three more years before his next bombing, mm. which, like I said, would be in the exact same location in Corey Hall at UC Berkeley. May 15th, 1985, John Hauser, a 26-year-old student at Berkeley and a captain in the U.S. Air Force, noticed a small white plastic box in the computer lab during the afternoon. As he bent down to pick it up and to investigate what the box was, the bomb exploded, causing significant damage to his face and requiring several hours of surgery. However, he would survive this bombing. Understandably, I mean, this is kind of two bombings um, within a couple of years uh, in the same exact building. It mm. kind of sparked some red flags. I mean, you'd think... 
again, it's kind of like the thing at Northwestern. Now suddenly, like, there's two bombs in two years, two bombs in three years at these specific locations. Mm -hmm. You're going to be a little, like, kind of edgy about, like, ever picking anything up. You know? Yeah. Yeah. In 1985 is where Kaczynski starts to kind of ramp things up. So June 13th of that same year, a suspicious package is found at the Boeing Fabrication Division in Washington. Oh, interesting. Boeing, again, major, huge airline industry. Boeing, evil company. That's, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) Builds airplanes, um, bombs, some scary shit. (laughs) Has a lot of security. So, and because they are this kind of major, like, government contracting organization uh they get security on this suspicious package immediately and this is another case where the bomb is removed and detonated safely with no injuries is this another one where he like delivers it on foot as far as we can tell yeah he's dropping these bombs off in specific locations either to be delivered like the bombs themselves are stable until you open them that's so interesting I just feel like that's something that, like, feels very of its time. Yeah. In a way. Because now, I mean, security and cameras and things like that, you would never be able to just be, like, this weird guy walking around with a box and not be noticed. Mm Mm-hmm. Just walking around, dropping something off. Although Mm -hmm. I think that in, like, in the universities, there's a million... that would be different. I think that is so easy to, Mm -hmm. you know, to fall behind in. In the yeah. 70s and the 80s, there was so much less security at airports. Yeah. Like, it was not going through the TSA lines and all of that shit no. that we've become so accustomed to. Yeah, no. So this bomb is removed, detonated safely with no injuries. And if you think about it, like, he has to be dropping these off personally because if he's mailing them, then they have tracking of, like, at least where he's mailing them from, where they, like, we can kind of track the postage and all of that sort of shit. Mm-hmm disappointed with how this one went in november 19 or november 15th 1985 university of michigan psychology professor james mcconnell receives a package at his home now he was working that friday afternoon at home with his assistant his graduate assistant nicholas suino who actually picked up the box from the mail The package held a three-ring binder, seemingly full of papers and forms, along with a letter requesting that Dr. McConnell review the enclosed student thesis. Well, Dr. McConnell was looking at this binder. Um, It was Sweeno who actually opened up the box and was injured when the bomb went off. Mm. He was severely injured and taken to the hospital, but also would survive the bombing. So that's another one that I think is interesting because it's kind of at his alma mater. Yeah. But to a psychology professor. Yeah, that's odd. I don't think it's odd given, like, his kind of, like, internalized hatred towards psychology and psychiatry. Yeah. But it's a little off his... Yeah. Why not send it to the guy at Harvard that... I mean, I guess, like, that would be too obvious. I think Murray was probably dead at this time. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But It it still seems kind of random. Like, alma mater, but not engineering or tech or the math department or whatever yeah or even to like the psychiatrist that he had that interview with Mm -hmm. less than a month kaczynski sends his next bomb so we've got like four in 1985 wow 
Um, December 11th, 1985, Kaczynski leaves, leaves a bomb in the parking lot of a Sacramento computer store, the Rentec Center. So it's just a computer store. The owner, Hugh Campbell Scrutton, finds the bomb and it explodes immediately upon opening. Uh, the blast would throw him nearly 10 feet and shrapnel would be found up to 150 yards from the bomb site. Wow. Hugh Campbell Scrutton was the first person to die at the hands of Ted Kaczynski. Oh. To which Kaczynski writes, I planted bomb disguised to look like scrap of lumber behind Ren Tech Center in Sacramento. According to San Francisco Examiner, December 20th, the, quote, operator, owner, question mark, manager, question mark, of the store was killed, blown to bits, on December 12th. Excellent. Humane way to eliminate somebody. He probably never felt a thing. No. $25,000 reward offered. Rather flattering. Oh, my God. So, I mean, I'm sure we'll see as his journals escalate, but this so far feels like the coldest and bleakest of him that we've seen so far. I think so. Yeah. It's really sad that, like, this guy just owned a store. Yeah, this is not some, like, titan of industry or, yeah, you know, researcher of these things that he's really just, like, fighting against or in his mind fighting against or whatever. Yeah. This is a guy that owns a store in Sacramento. Mm-hmm. He's just trying to make it like the rest of us. Yeah. But, yeah, that was the first actual death to occur. Mm. Um, after this rash of bombings Kaczynski would kind of disappear for about a year we can kind of suspect or you know hypothesize he was satisfied he finally had a cooling off period Mm. that sort of thing but his next bombing would not be until February 20th 1987 in the parking lot of yet another computer store called cams this was in Salt Lake City Kaczynski, again, leaves one of his bombs in the parking lot, only to be found by the store owner. His name is Gary Wright. It was noticed by both Wright and a few other employees, um, noted to be a pipe bomb that just kind of looked like something stuck in between two two-by-four pieces of wood. I should say, they just noticed, like, it was something stuck between these two pieces of, like, of two-by-fours kind of nailed together. They didn't know what it was at first. Yeah. Gary, the owner of the store, went to pick up the object, again, not knowing what it was, and it would explode in his hands, causing serious injuries to his face. He was hospitalized, but in stable condition and would recover from his injuries. However, this time, Kaczynski was seen by the store employees leaving the bomb. Oh. They would report to the police that they saw a man around 28 years old about five foot ten, blondish, curlyish hair, wearing a multicolored parka with a hood, jeans, and sunglasses. And it was from these reports that you would get that infamous sketch of the Unabomber. Huh. Really? It was a multicolored parka, by the way. Hmm. I mean, that's that is also really interesting because it's like he's not trying to blend in. He's wearing a multicolored parka that feels very like of its time, you know. I don't like, know. Very eighties. 19- yeah, yeah. Like nineteen eighty seven, I do think he would get a lot of multicolored parkas. Yeah. 
So I guess that would make sense. He's not going to wear like all black because that might actually stand out more in the context of the late 80s. Yeah, because it does. I mean, the sketch is black and white and it just looks like a hoodie. So yeah, and I just make the assumption. And I think more people have like the they've developed the control, the cultural consciousness around the sketch, Mm -hmm. not from the verbal descriptions of what he was wearing. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting because there's so this is the original sketch there's one more sketch will come about that mm-hmm. is the weird Al Yankovic sketch. <laughs> so he's found a methodology that works for him. Mm-hmm. Like this, you know, two by fours and everything, leaving it outside in a parking lot. I assume these ones are bigger if it's like between two planks of wood, mm-hmm. that these would be bigger objects. And I feel like they would probably look less in a way like look less suspicious like you might see a random like chunk of wood in a parking lot of a store and think like it's just like a pallet or like leftover from some sort of you know Mm -hmm. transportation of goods yeah but i think in a way it seems more inconspicuous to me than like a box in the middle of a student center or something i think it's interesting because he seems to kind of like quote unquote dress the bomb differently for the receiver like if Mm. it's left in a parking lot it's planks of wood if it's being delivered to somebody it's a binder and and a note or a cigar box if it's left you know in Mm. like a hall you know yeah i just wonder if he's if he's at this point if he's thinking about like what is the most efficacious way for me to do this Mm -hmm. right because this is like two in a row where it's these like outdoor it's left outdoors it's left with these planks of wood Mm -hmm. he knew that you know he did finally kill somebody with that first one in sacramento like is this going to be a method that he sticks with and i don't know the answer to that because i don't know but well i think it's interesting because now we're going to have another cooling off period Mm. for over six years kaczynski would retreat into the woods Wow, that's a big cooling off period. Yeah. So from 1987 until 1993. Hmm. And I was always curious, what was he doing during those years? What was going on for him? Because I get the cooling off period after the first actual murder. Mm -hmm. But this one was really long. So what was he doing? Um, First, I'm going to let you know. So this information I actually found within his psych eval. That was completed during his competency evaluation to establish him as competent to stand trial. And it turns out he was doing self-care. Really? Yes. Getting massages, getting his eyelashes done. Like, what's he up to? Not quite like that. But in the spring of 1988, Kaczynski made several contacts with mental health professionals. With the goal, as I kind of alluded to earlier, of trying to establish relationships with women. During this competency evaluation, he shared with a psychologist that one day in 1988-ish, he woke up after having a dream about a young woman and decided that maybe at age 45, it wasn't too late for him. Maybe he could find a relationship. Maybe he could settle down and live in the society that he had spent so many ruminations hating. Hmm. 
He genuinely considered leaving his isolated life in the woods, maybe finding a real job and a real relationship. So he writes to mental health providers. Again, I think written communication was his preferred modality. He didn't have a phone in the woods, and I think he was very, very awkward actually making face-to-face contact. So he writes to mental health providers complaining of insomnia and wanting mental health treatment. Mm. Um, Kaczynski did actually meet with a therapist once in 1988, a therapist named Elizabeth Gilbertson. During this session, he reportedly mentioned having, asking or requesting that the therapist arrange a meeting with him and some of her female clients. Ah. Gilbertson, this is fully speculation, was probably put off by this and kind of like, Ted, I don't think that's how this works. Yeah, no. But that was what he mentioned, and that's what he was seeking out, and would eventually actually later write a letter to follow up on this and remind her to do so, to arrange a meeting with him and his therapists. But he reported that she didn't pick up on his implied message. Mm. That's because it's gross. And yeah. Again, I think that it shows he doesn't understand how therapy works, how relationships work. Yeah. I wonder if maybe there was an implication of like, well, hey, Ted, what if, have you considered group therapy? If you want to work on relationships and communication and rapport, maybe group mm. therapy would be... I mean, that might be kind of what I would respond to in that situation. Yeah, that's interesting because it feels like there's a couple of, of options for what he's thinking there in mm-hmm. a way. Like, is he thinking, I need a social conduit. Like, I need somebody that can put me in touch with other people. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how else to do that. Here's mm-hmm. somebody that, you know, works in a caring profession and maybe they will have some insight on like who I could or could not like vibe with or whatever. Mm -hmm. Or, and this is all assuming that he thinks it's actually going to (laughs) work. Is he looking for somebody vulnerable? Mm -hmm. You Mm -hmm. know? And I think for being our most generous to Ted Kaczynski, Mm -hmm. um, we're saying, oh, he just, he feels like he needs a social conduit. Yeah. Um, I also think that in his very practical, pragmatic focused mind he was like well you're a person with a lot of contacts yeah you have a very large date book (laughs) share the wealth eventually ted would realize that he could not afford to continue to attend in-person therapy um but was interested in finding a therapist that he would he could communicate with and work with via written letter so writing letters to the therapist the therapist writing letters back and he felt that that would be the best treatment modality for him Mm. Um, so he reached out to the mental health center in Helena asking to be assigned to a counselor that he could correspond with via letter. However, this could not be worked out and could not be arranged. Um, I think there's a a lot of different reasons for that. I think that therapists might be a little ethically concerned about doing things that way. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine that it's like super effective or easily billable. (laughs) It's interesting, like I mean, and that's where we all hate capitalism, but... Yeah, well, don't we? It's interesting, because I feel like, you know, he's got this, like, horrific, like, just hell-bent drive against technology, Mm -hmm. right? 
But at the same time, he's also improving his methodology, which mm-hmm. is specifically technologically related. But I also keep thinking, like, man, he would have really liked better help. <laughs> right? I think about that, yeah. too. Yeah. And, like, all these things that we have access to now, I think he would have relished in some ways because he wouldn't have to have human contact in order to get, you know. Mm-hmm an online therapist that, you know, there's a plan on BetterHelp where you can just pay to text somebody, basically. Yeah. yeah. You know, you can do an online pharmacy to get your prescriptions and never have to go see a physical doctor or, like, that sort of stuff. Like, I think he would have relished that and hated it at the same time. So I'd been curious, like, what he would, where how he would, he would function in today's culture. I'm glad he has not functioned outside of not, jail in today's but... culture, but I'm curious about how he would have. Something I'm very... That I just, I noticed while putting together the research is that, and make of this what you will, but it was a, just a, a thread that I couldn't ignore. He rails against society and he rails against culture and collectivism and liberalism and leftism. But the things that he actually utilizes are all a product of big government. Mm-hmm. The library is a governmental institution. Mm-hmm. Community mental health centers that he contacts and tries to work with are governmental institutions. Well, I mean, how many people just rail against social services until they fucking need them? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I feel like that's very like part and parcel for a lot of that style of thinking, right? Like, oh, this is a welfare state. And then all of a sudden, oh shit, you got hurt and you need social security income. And now you're benefiting from the welfare state. And yeah. Yeah. Like I said, he reached out to the mental health center in Helena, um, asking to be connected with a therapist that he could just write to. Again, I, I think maybe this was kind of what he needed. He needed asynchronous. He needed written communication. And mm-hmm. Um, but at the time, it couldn't be worked out. At this time, so we're in the late 80s, we're going to lead into the early 90s, he admitted that he was in the throes of a pretty severe depression mm. that would continue to varying degrees until, according to Kaczynski, about 1994, that depressive period would continue. Interesting. So is it, it could be a simple explanation as his schooling off period was because he was depressed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. On October 2nd, 1990, Kaczynski's father, Turk Kaczynski, died by suicide. Oh. Turk had been suffering from terminal cancer. Oh, geez. And it seems that this was how he chose to end his journey. Wow. Yeah. I did not know that at all. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting again that this was actually how Kaczynski committed suicide. Oh, really? He had been given a terminal cancer diagnosis, and he ended him, his life in his cell. Oh, I hmm. I didn't really read anything about his death because I figured you would talk about it, and I didn't want to spoil your, yeah. your work. That's interesting. Yeah, right? Very, very yeah. interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Kaczynski actually, after his father's death, Kaczynski refused to attend his father's funeral and he remained in his cabin. It had been communicated to him by his brother and by his mother, um, who were still in communication with him to a point. Eventually, he would cut off communication with his mother. 
I think we had talked about this in the first episode that he, his mom would like send him care packages and send him money and do all of this stuff. And he would just become increasingly agitated toward her. Mm, Yeah. That, oh, you just don't understand. Why are you sending me this stuff? Um, He would get really upset that he asked her, stop sending me letters. So kind of in a desperate attempt to continue like communication with her son she really cared about him she wanted to connect with him she started writing him postcards and this pissed him off Hmm. like he's like how dare you now all of this detail my information and thoughts you have about me are now just out there for the public to see for anybody to see wow Um, no one cares Ted It's okay. Uh, I. It's interesting to read his letters during this time because he talks about like, again, maybe I should have settled down. Maybe I should come back and like try to find a job and try to kind of go back to things. Mm. Most of this was in connections to letters to his brother, David. There was one weird letter. I didn't know if I wanted to talk about this at all, but like... It was like a family friend or something. Kaczynski had made like a gift for their young daughter, who I think was somewhere between like eight and 12. It was like a family friend. And he just made like a little like music box or something for her and Mm. sent it to this family friend. And so the dad wrote back and was like, thank you so much. You know, this was a really lovely gift. Maybe next time we're in Montana, we can kind of stop and see you and have lunch together. And he writes back and he says, nobody invited you weird creepy right yeah that's really weird yeah i was like i don't really know where this fits into our story but i feel like it's something yeah i mean without knowing like precisely what the relationship was Mm -hmm. and like how close of a family friend are we talking about Mm -hmm. like is this somebody that he would like have grown up with or something like that like but it seems like a very it seems pretty random like i Nowhere in this story have I felt like, wow, Ted Kaczynski was like a really generous guy, Mm -hmm. like thoughtful and generous towards other people. So I have to assume there's an ulterior motive for sending the gift in the first place. It's also a gift to a child, which is just, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I know. Like, I don't feel good. About Ted Kaczynski. Well, I don't feel good about Ted Kaczynski. But, like, if somebody wants to give my kid a gift, I really, really prefer that you ask me about that first. Agreed. You know? Agreed. Um, yeah. And, you know, that's different from, like, oh, I stopped by and I saw this at the dollar store when I was, you know, or whatever. But, like, something that's, like, a gift, like, a substantial gift, something handmade, like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that that feels, like, really out of context personal for profile of Ted Kaczynski we're otherwise building here and and I think that that's where I'm like what were your motivations here this is Mm -hmm. awkward um jumping back into things 1991 Kaczynski would go see a general practitioner for treatment of insomnia the doctor also assessed for depression and kind of said like hey I think this is your real problem here I think that's the depression driving the insomnia and addressed this with Ted eventually prescribing him trazodone Kaczynski took the trazodone for a few days, but said that it made him drowsy and gassy. Um, That'll happen. So he didn't like the side effects, so he stopped taking the trazodone. Um, 
he would once again reach out to another community mental health center, this time in Great Falls, but there was no follow through. I'm not sure if that means there was no follow through on his end or on their end. It was the language kind of um, unclear. In 1991, again, he would work with an MD in Missoula to address heart palpitations and stress once again being referred for treatment of insomnia in 1993 at another community mental health center. It's during this time in 1993 that he starts working with Dr. Gorin on managing his stress and him saying that he really wants to make like a real actual change. He starts studying and takes the GRE. Obviously scores very well. We know that he is intellectually an academic person. His plan was to attend the University of Montana to study journalism. However, although it seemed like he clearly would have been accepted, clearly would have done fine in the program, he never actually attended. Instead, things would start to kind of fall apart. Now, a few things happened culturally in 1993. I don't know if you remember them at all. No. <laughs> All right, maybe your cult, maybe your memory will kind of be triggered by a couple of uh, items that I will mention. Okay, lay it on me. The original World Trade Center bombing in February 1993. Mm-hmm. The Waco siege mm. from February to April of 1993. There was an increase in anti-government activity mm. from the Waco siege to, oh God, I always forget the one that was before that, that kind of triggered off the Waco siege or exacerbated it. Ruby Ridge. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes more sense. There was Ruby Ridge. There was the Waco siege. There was the World Trade Center bombing. All of this kind of sudden, what seemed very suddenly kind of anti-government activity, attacks specifically on governmental American culture, Mm. attacks on society. Kaczynski is aware of this. This starts to get in his head. And this is when he starts to reemerge. Remember, this had been a six-year cooling off period. And whether we can attribute to, I think the depression was a large part of it. I think he did kind of have these periods of like, maybe I do want something different. Maybe this doesn't have to be my life. But after these events in 1993, he reemerges. And in June 22nd, 1993, A well-known geneticist at the University of California named Charles Epstein receives a package in his home. It's an 8x11 padded envelope delivered to his California house. He takes it into his kitchen where he opens it up, and a bomb would go off, blowing his kitchen windows and screens off, ripping a table off its legs and scattering glass throughout the kitchen. Jeez. Epstein would suffer the loss of two fingers with injuries to his abdomen and a broken arm, but would go on to recover. That was June 22nd of 1993. His next bombing would be July 24th of 1993. Wow. Yeah. Very quick. Yeah. Kaczynski would send another bomb to a prominent computer scientist named David Gellerter at Yale University. Once again, Professor Gellerter would suffer serious injuries but would recover from this bombing. About a year, a year and a couple of months would pass until December 10th, 1994. And Kaczynski sends a bomb to a New Jersey advertising executive. This was apparently a pretty high level executive. His name was Thomas Mos- Mosser or Mosier. I can't 
I have heard it both ways in different stories. Vice president of an advertising company. He was responsible for the um, the Exxon oil reimagining. Interesting. The image recovery of Exxon oil after the Exxon Valdez oil spill. Would Ted Kaczynski have known that? I think so. I think he would have been able to kind of connect the dots of like, who's doing the advertising? Who's the marketing people for Exxon Oil? Who's the president of these companies? Interesting. Because I've been trying to trace, like, why this person? Why this person? Mm-hmm. Why the geneticist? Uh, he, it- he hated geneticists. He viewed geneticists as responsible of... Basically, geneticists were directly related to eugenics. Mm. And messing with genetics went fully against the the natural evolution and the natural order of what humanity should be. You shouldn't mess with genetics. Okay, got it. So Thomas Mosser would receive the package at his New Jersey home and much like the others, take it to the kitchen um, or immediately upon opening it, he would suffer a severe and heavy blast from the explosion and he would go on to die from his injuries Mm. about six months later um four months later april 24th 1995 would be the date of kaczynski's last bombing Hmm. this bomb would be sent to the president of the timber of a timber industry lobbying lobbying it the president of a timber industry lobbying group called the california forestry association the man's name was gilbert murray this bomb was actually addressed to the previous president um murray had just recently stepped into the role the bomb was addressed to william dennison and kaczynski would write in the papers that he was not disappointed because when this bomb went off in Gilbert Murray's hands, Gilbert Murray would also die from the explosion. Ugh. Kaczynski would write in his journals that he was not disappointed that he killed the wrong person. He was never wow. upset if he killed the wrong person because he had no value for human life. Those are his words or yours? We'll get into it because we're going to okay. get into the letter that he wrote to the New York Times mm-hmm. and the Washington Post. Okay. So especially these last few bombs, as they were reported by the press, were obviously automatically connected to the Unabomber. After Mm -hmm. that six-year cooling-off period, I think that the FBI kind of let down their guard a little bit. And then those bombs happened in such quick succession. Mm. Again, it's a whole another episode that I don't have time to get into. And again, there are so many better podcasts that go deeply into the investigation. But throughout this entire time, the FBI has been tracking the materials within the bombs, how they were made, what they were made with, the typeface on the print of the addresses and all of that stuff. They had it identified down to the specific model of typewriter that he was using. Wow. They had handwriting analysis of every letter that he wrote on the addresses and everything. Kaczynski would often type or emboss FC somewhere onto the bombs on a piece of shrapnel or somewhere else. FC was his signature, and it stood for Freedom Club. Mm. The very edgy name that he would give himself to kind of 
hide, to give himself this private internal club that he made for himself and his belief system to make himself seem more important. Wow. That, oh no, it's not just me and I'm not just a madman. I'm not just a sickie. No, I'm an I'm entire a, organization. I'm, yeah. I got, I'm the freedom club. Wow. Did he write in, in code? What is this? Yes. Some of his journals were written in ciphers. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, most of them have been decoded. From what I understand, it wasn't like a severely like complex cipher. But it was a cipher. And not all of his journals were. So in April 1995, a hefty tome was received at the offices of the New York Times and the Washington Post. Inside of that was the manifesto of Ted Kaczynski. Oh. The 35,000 word essay that he had been working on for years. Mm. 35,000 handwritten words. Wow. That took dozens of pages to write. Yeah. Along with the manifesto came a letter that I want to read an excerpt from. He is writing this using plural pronouns, using we. Signing it as the Freedom Club. Mm. His letter reads, We blew up Thomas Mosser last December because he was a Burstyn Marsteller executive. Among other misdeeds, Burstyn Marsteller helped Exxon clean up its public image after the Exxon Valdez incident. But we attacked Burstyn Marsteller less for its specific misdeeds than on general principles. Burstyn Marsteller is about the biggest organization in the public relations field. This means that its business is the development of techniques for manipulating people's minds. It was for this more than its actions in specific cases that we sent a bomb to an executive of this company. Some news reports have made the misleading statement that we have been attacking universities or scholars. We have nothing against universities or scholars as such. All the universities whom we have attacked have been specialists in technical fields. We considered certain areas of applied psychology, such as behavior modification, to be technical fields. Ah. We would not want anyone to think that we have any desire to hurt professors who study archaeology, history, literature, or harmless stuff like that. The people who we are out to get are scientists and engineers, especially in critical fields of computers and genetics. As for the bomb we planted in the business school at the U of Utah, that was a botched operation. We won't say how or why it was botched because we don't want to give the FBI any clues. No one was hurt by that bomb. In our previous letter to you, we called ourselves anarchists. Since anarchist is a vague word that has been applied to a variety of attitudes, further explanation is needed. We call ourselves anarchists because we would like, ideally, to break down all society into very small, completely autonomous units. Regrettably, we don't see any clear road to this goal, so we leave it out of our indefinite future. Our more immediate goal, which we think may be more attainable at some time during the next several decades, is the destruction of the worldwide industrial system. Through our, bom- realistic. <laughs> Through our bombings, we hope to promote social instability in industrial society, propagate anti-industrial ideas, and give encouragement to those who hate the industrial system. The FBI has tried to portray these bombings as the work of an isolated nut. We won't waste our time arguing about whether we are nuts, but we certainly are not isolated. For security reasons, we won't reveal the number of members in our group, but anyone who will read the anarchist and radical environmentalist journals will see that the opposition of the industrial technological system is widespread and growing. 
it was huh. one person. Yeah. Why do we make our only our goals only now through we made our first bomb some 17 years ago? Our early bombings were too ineffectual to attract much public attention or give encouragement to those who hate the system. We found by experience that gunpowder bombs, if small enough to be carried inconspicuously, were too feeble to do much damage. So we took a couple of years off to do some experimenting. We learned how to make pipe bombs that were powerful enough, and we used these in a couple of successful bombings as well as in some unsuccessful ones. And then there's a passage deleted by the FBI. Mm. Since we no longer have to confine the explosive in our pipe... We are now free of limitations on the size and shapes of our bombs. We are pretty sure we know how to increase the power of our explosives and reduce the number of batteries needed to set them off. And as we've indicated, we think that we have more effective fragmentation material, so we expect to be able to pack deadly bombs into an even smaller, lighter, and more harmless-looking package. On the other hand, we believe that we will be able to make bombs much bigger than any we've made before with a briefcase full or suitcase full of explosions. We should be able to blow the walls of substantial buildings. Again, like he's following this after the World Trade Center bombings and others that have been that he feels have been much more successful than him. And I think that he wants to follow in their footsteps. On the other hand, we believe that we would we will be able to make bomb. Oh, I already heard that part. Sorry. Clearly, we are in a position to do a great deal of damage, and it doesn't appear that the FBI is going to catch us anytime soon. The FBI is a joke. The people who are pushing all of this progress and garbage deserve to be severely punished, but our goal is less to punish them than to propagate ideas. Anyhow, we are tired of making bombs. It's no fun to have to spend all your time, all your evenings and weekends preparing dangerous mixtures, filling trigger mechanisms out of scraps of metal, or searching the Sierras for a place to for a place isolated enough to test a bomb. So we offer a bargain. We have a long article between 29,000 and 37,000 words that we want to have published. If you can get it published according to our requirements, we will permanently desist from terrorist activities. It will be published in the New York Times, Time, or Newsweek, or in some other widely read, nationally distributed periodical. So in this letter, he's basically saying, I will be able to do more damage. I will continue this unless you publish my manifesto. So you're the New York Times. You receive this letter. What do you do? It's interesting. I mean, it's it's a quandary, but I feel like, I guess I would feel like it's not really my call to make. <laughs> So <laughs> nice, nice back out. I would, I would go ahead and punt that to the old FBI and mm-hmm. ask them what they would want me to do. But I don't think I would believe somebody if they told me that, I guess. Like if somebody's already out here doing all this bombing and indiscriminate Who clearly and maiming and no killing people. Who care for human life. Yeah. I, I would not assume that it would actually be the, the deal that he's proposing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I couldn't see a scenario wherein I would publish that or take yeah. that deal. No. Yeah. The FBI and the Washington Post both received this letter, and I think they did exactly what you did. They went to the FBI. And yeah. they said, what the hell do we do? Yeah. Like, what? Because there was a big debate of people saying, we have a responsibility to publish this. 
mm-hmm. and people saying, no, you can't give in to the demands of a terrorist. Right. Yeah. So that sparked. So the papers went to the FBI. There was another big kind of back and forth and discussion within the FBI. A lot of the old guard within the FBI said, what's the point of publishing this? Mm-hmm. We're giving into his demands. We don't think he's going to stop. We we can't do what a madman's asking us to do. Yeah. Um. But there was an FBI investigator that made a really strong argument to publish the manifesto. Her name is Kathy Puckett. And she fought tooth and nail against the old guard and kind of the old boys club at the FBI. Because she read the manifesto. And what she read... She's like, this person is giving himself away. Mm. Somebody knows this person. Ah. They will know by the way he phrases things. And I I struggled. I don't want to read a bunch of the manifesto. I, there are parts that I think that you can read. I've read through it. Um, it's a bunch of hateful vitriol. Yeah. But it's also very self-revealing, hateful vitriol. Mm. There are parts where he goes on tirades, attacking, like, industrial society is terrible because it forces children to study all the time when they should be out in the woods. And it forces them to be in sciences when that's not what's best for them. And now people are putting too much time or too much into children and the feminists and the feminists are taking away from men's power. It is incredibly self-revealing. The political points that he makes, like I said, I don't think they're anything that anyone else hasn't discussed or that haven't, yeah. to me, kind of become a trope at this point. But Kathy Puckett said, the way he speaks, the words he uses, the phrases he uses repeatedly... Somebody's heard those before. This isn't the first time this writer has went on this rant. They ended up, they do end up printing it. They got, obviously, thousands of leads. Everybody is turning in their ex, their estranged father, this person that they don't like. It's like when you hear of somebody just, like, casually call everyone they don't like a narcissist. Mm -hmm. That was who the Unabomber was now. Yeah. Some of those leads were more promising than others. But you know who read these letters? Oh, David? David Kaczynski's wife, Linda Patrick. Now, Linda had never actually met Ted. um, In part because Ted, without meeting her, hated her and disliked her and said terrible things about her when David decided to get married. But Linda had come across and read through some of the letters that had been passed between David and Ted throughout the years. And when she read these articles, she recognized the wording and the phrasing and the terminology that Kaczynski was using. And she eventually confronted David and said, I think your brother's the Unabomber. David's like, no, no way. I mean, if you somebody told you your brother was a serial killer, like, how do you even respond to that? No. 
Especially when I think that there's a part of him that maybe thought maybe. Yeah. Um, he eventually says, like, no, there's there's no way, whatever. Um, and he said, okay, maybe there's, like, a one in a thousand chance. Mm. And Linda's like, y- you realize that's a chance, though, right? Like, that, you're saying that it's not nothing. Mm. And she encourages him, go get the paper. I want you to read the manifesto. So David kind of looks, he actually makes several attempts to try to find the paper and he can't find it anywhere because it's all sold out. And he actually ends up having to read it on the internet, which I think wow. is really interesting. Early internet. 1995's internet. Interesting. Um, and he said that his jaw dropped when he read just the first few lines of the manifesto. Wow. And he's like, okay. There's not nothing here, essentially. Mm. So Linda suggests that they take Ted's letters to a private investigator. And they find this private investigator, Susan Swanson, who was trained in linguistic analysis. And Susan is the first person to say it was Linda that solved the Unabomber case. Wow. Go, Linda. Yeah. When the private investigator, Susan, looked at the letters to David and the manifesto printed in... So the manifesto eventually was printed in the Washington Post. Um, They agreed to print it in the Washington Post because it was cheaper and it had, like, a higher readership, so it would be more accessible Mm. to people. Um, Susan said when she read the two that they were basically indistinguishable. But she didn't stop there. She said, okay, this is like one piece of the puzzle, but we need more before we go to the FBI. Mm. And she was able to track the bus routes from Helena to Montana and say, oh, yeah, there are immediate bus routes to all of these locations. Ah. She would take the information to the FBI on behalf of David and Linda. The FBI took the information they were kind of blown away by it once they got the information. But obviously they had to do their due diligence too. They interviewed David. They actually tracked down Wanda. Both Wanda and David were now living in Schenectady. David was working as a social worker. David has done such amazing work. But after the after the FBI had done their due diligence, like it was unavoidable. Linda had caught the Unabomber. There was a major kind of stakeout to get him arrested at this point. Like I said, I'm, I'm leaving out a lot of the FBI investigation here. But there was a major stakeout where the FBI got in contact with the Garings, who owned the sawmill. And they were, said, hey, we're looking at this person for some crimes. Could you give us any information? The owner basically said, yeah, like, we can, like, I'll go walk you over to him. He's right over there. And the way that they eventually set up the arrest was they had FBI officials dressed as forestry agents that said that they had to do some surveying on the land. And they had obviously had people in the wings kind of SWAT style um, with guns kind of pointed at the cabin. But they were all kind of all hidden in the woods. They had two FBI agents dressed as forestry officials knock on Kaczynski's door, essentially saying, 
hey, we're with the forestry department. Um, we're just doing some surveying. Can you tell us where your land ends? Mm. And he's like, yeah, kind of over there, blah, 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 blah. They're like, oh, you know, it's just hard for us to tell. Would you mind coming out with us? Because mm. they can't arrest him in his house. Yeah. So he's like, yeah, okay, let me get my coat. And he kind of steps out slightly and then turns his back to go grab his coat. And that's when they grab him. They wrestle him and they arrest him just outside of his cabin in Montana. Wow. A lot happens after that in terms of legal stuff. Ted Kaczynski is taken in. He is charged. There is a long, drawn-out trial, primarily because Ted's defense team worked very, very hard to try to get an insanity defense. Mm -hmm. He was interviewed and evaluated by several psychiatrists and psychologists, who would eventually give a provisional diagnosis of schizophrenia. Interesting. I have read through the documents. I have read through the evidence and their justification for a diagnosis of schizophrenia, where they are citing he is having paranoia, he's having delusions, he's having tangential thoughts. I agree that he is having all of those, but I don't think that he's out of touch with reality. Mm. Um. And I don't think that it's related to schizophrenia. Yeah. So eventually the diagnosis of schizophrenia would stick. However, there is a battle where the defense is saying he is not fit for tr- for trial. He is not fit to participate in his defense. And obviously the prosecution saying, no, he knew exactly what he was doing. And I'm going to argue based on his journals, he knew exactly what he was doing. Mm-hmm. He knew who he was harming, why he was trying to harm them. And Ted himself said, no, I knew exactly what I was doing and I knew exactly who I was trying to harm and why. Yeah. He wanted to go down with his ship. So he probably was not about getting a diagnosis. He did not want to get a diagnosis. He Because he wouldn't have wanted to be a quote-unquote sickie. Yeah, he fought tooth and nail with his defense team. That would eventually lead to him pleading guilty. Hmm. I'm just looking at some pictures of his arrest. Um, first off, I like the uh, the little undercover forestry outfits on these FBI agents. <laughs> Don't you like their little undercover? Yeah. I love it. I love that. I mean, when he was arrested, Ted Kaczynski looked awful. Yeah. Yeah. He looked really bad. When it's so interesting to me, because when you see like pictures that people use and like media and things like that, they use like his cleaned up pictures. Sometimes mm-hmm. they'll use his pictures from Harvard. Sometimes they'll, they'll use like when he's all cleaned up and showing off for court. At his arrest, he looks feral i mean he looks like for people that haven't seen these uh and i i mean i have to be honest i have like no conscious memory of this happening i was too busy having an awful childhood but (laughs) like he looks dirt physically dirty like there's dirt on his face Mm -hmm. his clothes are in tatters like Mm -hmm. his jeans are like ripped falling apart yeah um 
He looks, you can see that his hands are dirty. You can see that his arms are dirty. Mm-hmm. He's like, he's looking unwashed, unkempt. Mm-hmm. Um, he looks unwell. Yeah. I don't know about his physical health at this point, but he's like almost uncomfortably thin in these pictures. It's very, very gaunt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, some something was going on with him at this point. So at the time, like I said, he was um, diagnosed with schizophrenia, and that was verified a couple of times through different evaluations. On January 21st, 1998, he was declared competent to stand trial, quote, despite the psychiatric diagnoses. And I think like we've talked about this before. Like, you can have a psychiatric diagnosis, you can have a mental illness diagnosis, but that does not mean that you're not competent. Right. That means he was, he understood what he was doing, he understood the consequences, and he was there. On January 22nd, he pled guilty, accepting a life in prison without the possibility of parole. He would eventually try to withdraw his plea, saying that he was coerced, that was denied, and the conviction was obviously upheld, and he would spend the rest of his life in prison. Dying in June of 2023. It's crazy. June 10th, 2023. He was pronounced dead. He was found dead in his cell due to suicide. He actually had been given a terminal cancer diagnosis. He was diagnosed with the cancer in 2021. So he had been diagnosed with terminal cancer for about two years at this point. Mm, Gotcha. And that is the story of Ted Kaczynski. Jeez. I mean, it's a really interesting. It was interesting to hear about because it's just not like a genre of true crime that I typically would pursue. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's really interesting to look at people that have these motivations that they think of as like great, like greater, great as in large, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. Ideological people that are ideologically motivated i think it's really interesting and i think what's interesting to me and you know granted like i haven't read the manifesto and don't please save yourself yeah i mean i there's a part of me that wants to because i want to understand um because i think the thing i'm struggling with is just that his motivation seems just really all over the place in the sense that like like at first it seemed like okay we have this like technology focus um but then towards the end there it just seems like just completely anti-establishment in any way that he could grasp. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that sounds like that was the content of the manifesto. It, I feel like he had, you know, as much as I will disagree with them, ideals and a structured worldview at one point. Yeah. And he spiraled further and further away from it. And I think there were periods you could see he was trying to, like, grasp at something toward the end before Mm -hmm. he got caught. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think at the end of the day, he was kind of falling apart. Yeah. I I think it's interesting. So we had talked in the first um, episode his he was tested he was iq tested when he was a teen when he was i think around 10 where the on the stanford revised or the stanford benet revised and found to have an iq of 170 in his psychiatric evaluation during the competency hearings 
1996, he was reassessed and found to have an IQ of 136. Mm. Interestingly, he had a verbal, verbal scores of 138 and a performance score of 124, which I found fascinating because as him considering himself a logician and a mathematician, that seems low. Mm. That's interesting. Does that speak to application of what he did have and it's still like those scores are not low scores no they're not low scores they're still yeah. in the, like the 99th percentile well yeah, yeah. 136 is yeah so i just wonder like how much of that is like his ability to to take what he has and mm-hmm. and use it in whatever way you know yeah i mean there there's a million different reasons for that difference in scores it could be literal chance or what regression to the mean like yeah um it yes. could also be depression and isolation and I do think that the, just the way that he looked when he was arrested, mm-hmm. there's no way that he was at his best in yeah, right. any way. Right. Yeah. Other kind of just notable results from the evaluation that I thought was interesting, his MMPI evaluation, he had a 4-6 profile, which means that he scored his highest on scales of psychopathic deviate and paranoia. That fits. Right. Uh, Kind of reflecting like the worldview is threatening, feeling misunderstood, mistreated by people. He was hostile, irritable, self-centered, not concerned about the rights of others. Um, He described having an unstable family life, poor relationships, work and educational history, and very resistant treatment interventions. (laughs) Well, yeah, all that fits him, right? His Milan scores, so the MCMI, revealed him as a schizoid, avoidant, and sadistic aggressive, experiencing hostile alienation, very, very few attachments or positive positive human experiences, and that he tends to relate to others through threats and posturing, and essentially, like, he peacocks. Yeah. Incel vibes, for sure. Incel vibes. He views others as devalued or unimportant. Mm. And that was interesting. Good job. Thank you. Yeah. I hope, again, like if people are interested in the investigative side of this, which is kind of fascinating, Project Unabom, to me, I think is the best investigation that you can get. Is that a podcast or a Podcast. It's a podcast. Okay, cool. Yeah, because I may want to listen to that now because, (laughs) again, I feel like you have um, opened my eyes to something I would not ordinarily pursue. So I always appreciate that. Oh, I'm glad, friend. Yeah, right, well now done. that we are done with this terrible, terrible tome that is Ted Kaczynski, and I can finally close these fucking notes, <laughs> <laughs> why don't you tell us what we're going to be doing next week? Okay, sure. So uh, next time we come together, we are going to be looking at, uh, I think we're probably both going to get pretty feisty because Ooh. we are going to be looking at uh, the stories of two children that died because of their parents' beliefs about medical care. Ah, fuck. I'm going to be feisty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're going to be talking about uh, the, you know, where does liberty start and stop? We're going to be talking about, obviously, personal responsibility. We will be talking about the Church of Christ scientist. And I'm interested to see kind of your take and I'm interested to kind of posit the question to people about like where do your personal liberties start and stop what's that say what's that expression your personal freedom stop at the end of your nose I've never heard that before but I like it I might be I might be misquoting it because I do that a lot yeah 
That is one of the more protrudent part of my body, so it makes sense. Yeah, mine too. You're right to swing your arms ends just where the other person, the other man's nose begins. That's wordy. Yeah, I, I like, like your version better, but I get it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's it's going to be an interesting discussion. And I also just really want to give some time and attention to the stories of these yeah. kids. Because cool. again, I think it's, you know, in, in some ways, it's a genre of it's a subgenre of true crime that I don't think we talk about very much, but uh, has a, a wider impact than most of us would want to believe that it has. Agreed. I'm excited to hear. Yeah, good. So uh, please do come back for that, friends. Huzzah. I am so tired. I am so tired. <laughs> We're going to log off because I have to go pick up uh, foster puppies in the morning. Yay. Uh, we're going to have murder pups again. So Yay. And I have to go to bed. So yeah. um, until we see you guys again, my friends, please engage with us on the socials. We would love to hear from you. Uh, we would love to take some case requests. We are... Um, just happy in any way to engage with you um so if you like us please leave us those happy multiple starred reviews uh we always appreciate that Mm -hmm. uh and if you don't like us you don't have to be here karen change the channel man just change again Mm -hmm. i don't why are you gonna listen to something that you're not enjoying yeah i don't get it so yeah that's uh that's my response to that (laughs) (laughs) all right right, friends friends. be nice we're getting a little punchy here so we're tired yeah be nice be midwestern bye bye friends she's like climbing she's trying to climb on like tables and shit you know it's Mm -hmm. like she still won't walk but she will try to <laughs> climb on a table. And so she she was like trying to climb onto the bicycle like backwards for the first time. And I was like, let me help correct you. And she just shot me this look like the fuck you will. Like, bitch, I got this. Mm-hmm. I'm like, fine, get on it backwards. <laughs>